Hello, everyone, and welcome to the PyTorch Dev Podcast. Today, I want to talk about Inductor IR. Inductor IR is an intermediate representation that lies after the A10 graph, but before the actual Trident code generation. So if you think about the overall PyTorch 2 stack, um, once we are done capturing the graph with Dynamo, we have a bunch of FX nodes um, referring to A10 operations. And then in order for Inductor to actually compile this code into Trident code, it will take that A10 graph and do a bunch of transformations on it, first converting it into inductor IR, and then scheduling that IR, and then actually finally generating the code from the scheduled nodes. Um, and that's how you actually get the good tried and goodness, as well as the wrapper, Python, or C++ code that strings it all together. So as you might imagine, the inductor IR is a pretty important thing to know how to work with if you are planning to work on the compiler in Inductor at all. Now, I don't have a good organization for all of the um, for all of the uh, things that I want to talk about here. So this is going to be a bit of a grab bag of things. But to start off, I first want to talk about sort of some of the motivating design considerations behind Inductor IR. Also, a disclaimer: I did not write Inductor IR, and I am still learning how to figure things out, as most of us are over in PyTorch Core. So another thing is that there are some things that are not ideal about the current state of Inductor IR, and probably could use some refactoring. So I may make some errors in this podcast. It's also rapidly changing. This podcast may become out of date. I recommend sort of like, you know, continuing to join the conversation on PyTorch GitHub um, if you are interested in contributing. Okay, so let's talk about some of the design considerations behind Inductor IR. So first off, um, we might ask the question, why do we need an intermediate representation between ATEN operators and the actual Trident code gen, right? Why can't we just go ahead and directly generate Trident code from each ATEN operation? So there are a few reasons why you don't want to do this, right? So one is that um, you know we don't actually want to generate a Trident kernel per ATEN operation. We want to do fusion, right? So we need some way of saying, hey, we have a bunch of uh, ATEN operations which can be fused together, say a sequence of pointwise operations, and we need to be able to represent the result of doing this fusion. And of course, ATEN graphs are pretty simple in that they only call a sequence of operations and are done, um, which means that they don't really have any concept of, well, this is a fusion node that contains a bunch of operations that are grouped together. Now, if you're um, familiar with old school TorScript, um, we sort of uh, just did the obvious thing in that case, right? So a fusion group is simply a big operator that inside itself contains another graph, which contains a bunch of little operators that are expected to be fused together. So you can certainly design your compiler this way, but we did it a little differently with inductor IR for some other reasons. What exactly did we do in inductor IR? There are a few ways to understand this. I'm going to go through a few different ways of thinking about it. So one way to go about looking at this is to just look at the code and see, well, what exactly are the classes and data structures that we define for IR? So if you look in inductor IR.py, you'll see that there is a class called IRNode, and there are a number of subclasses of it. Um, and these subclasses have names such as loops, base view, layout, buffer, mutable box. And you might be wondering, well, what exactly is the relationship for all of these things? Actually, these are all different ty types of things. Um, IR node is sort of just this grab bag class that puts everything together. In fact, each of these is its own distinct concept. And so it's best to uh, you know, not imagine that you know, all IR nodes are interchangeable. It's not, it's not an abstract data type with these various things that you can have as various options. 
Um, what's another way to understand how IR node works? Well, another way is when we write lower rings. So a lower ring in inductor is the code that takes a particular ATN op and then produces a bunch of IR nodes, a bunch of inductor IR representing that operation. What exactly does that look like? And so a lower ring um, very closely follows the format that you expect for the function signature in question. So for example, if I'm lowering an uh, addition between two operations, I'm going to get something that's like a tensor, but in inductor IR, and something that's like a tensor in inductor IR. So those are my two arguments to my addition. Now, what exactly do I get? Well, I mentioned this thing called mutable box. What I actually get is this thing called tensor box, which represents a tensor in inductor IR. Now, what exactly is inside a tensor box? Why do I have a box on its name? Well, let's think about it. So when I do operations in PyTorch, I can have mutating operations, right? So for example, if I have an ATEN graph and I say add underscore, I'm going to mutate a tensor in place. Now, uh, this is makes sense and is fine if I'm actually trying to do the operation for real uh, on actual data. But what if I'm trying to actually go ahead and do some sort of lowering? What if I'm trying to you know, generate some inductor IR for this situation? Well, I can't just do the mutation, but if anyone else ref references my, uh, my tensor at some later point in time in some other lowering, what I need to have happen is I needed to reference the result after having done the mutation, not the result before having done it. So the IR is immutable in some sense, right? When I do a in-place addition, I want to create a node that represents, hey, I did this mutation. But now when I do operations afterwards, I want everyone to make reference to the thing afterwards. So TensorBox basically says, okay, I'm gonna contain some IR inside, which represents the, uh, whatever it is that I wanna, uh, whatever it is produces the output for the tensor in question. But whenever I do a mutation on it, I will mutably swap out the IR that it is pointing to, to whatever the new IR is that represents, uh, you know, the result having after done the mutation in question. Um, now that's not to say that inductor IR doesn't have mutation, it does. Uh, but you know, we are sort of, we're not, we're not processing the IR in a traditional compiler sense where you, know, you just have some sort of graph representation and we're writing things into the graph. Instead, we're sort of maintaining a big pile of tensors which represent you know, pointers into various parts of the IR. In fact, the IR isn't even ordered at this point. We just have a bunch of IR fragments floating around that have some dependencies between each other because we're gonna actually figure out what order we actually wanna run them in uh, later when we do scheduling. Okay, so a tensor box contains a, uh, you know, something. Actually, the tensor box doesn't actually contain the thing that you would mutate if you're doing a data mutation because the tensor box contains a pointer to a storage box uh, and the storage box represents the actual backing data score. And this is useful because we can have multiple tensors referencing the same storage. And so, you know, we may have multiple tensor boxes referencing the same storage box. And the storage box is what actually references a buffer that actually, you know, represents the data that is living in the tensor at that point in time. 
So one thing to notice here is that, you know, inductor IR actually faithfully models PyTorch semantics, right? If you like think you understand how PyTorch eager mode works, and then you go look at how inductor IR works, and more importantly, how inductor IR evolves while you're doing the lowering, it really matches what you'd expect to see if you were just running a traditional PyTorch program. So you have eager mutation, you can have views. In fact, not only can you have views, you can have arbitrary indexing, you know, arithmetic, depending on what the view in question is. This is something that uh, Jason Ansel um, was very was very important to him when he was designing Inductor because a lot of compilers, you know, don't like uh, don't buy into PyTorch's idea of views and strides. And as a result, they have to do a lot of work to, you know, sort of deal with strange patterns that show up when people write PyTorch programs in practice. So Inductor is all about, you know, being able to compile PyTorch as it is, and it builds in all of these concepts that are very important to PyTorch, and so we're willing to deal with them as well. One consequence, for example, of you know being able to do strided indexing is we have this entire mechanism for making complicated indexers, where, where you know I'm doing a kernel, I'm accessing data on a tensor, but the data may not be contiguous. There might be some strange stride pattern that I need to do. Inductor can generate arbitrary indexing expressions to fetch out the correct data in this quest case and you know we we need to be able to do simplifications and things on this indexing and this is one of the reasons why we use simpy in inductor for example okay so inductor faithfully models pytorch semantics we have this tensor storage uh, distinction between the box eventually you get to a buffer which actually represents the data in question you can views on the buffers all that sort of stuff you can have mutation on the ir but when you do mutation all we're doing is we're swapping out the contents of a storage box with a new buffer that represents what happened after the mutation and finally we get to the buffer itself which you know somehow represents how we computed the data in question and the most in interesting buffer uh, that you know you will usually see when you're looking at inductor IR is the so-called computed buffer which says hey we did some sort of a computation like a pointwise operation or reduction that actually produced the data in question and inside these computed buffers you actually finally have um, the IR nodes like pointwise and reduction that represent the actual you know computation that we're doing in PyTorch now there's something kind of interesting here, which is that um, these nodes, uh, you know, you would expect them naively to contain FX graphs representing the various operations that are being fused together in a pointwise operation or reduction, but we don't actually ref uh, define them this way in Inductor. They're, they're instead defined by this thing called define by run. If you are a PL nerd, um, this is actually another way of referring to uh, what we call higher order abstract syntax. Um, the main idea behind define by run is that instead of maintaining an explicit graph representation, uh, we instead maintain a graph as a function. So, so it's very higher order. You have a function which takes in a bunch of arguments representing all the arguments that the actual you know, IR graph would have represented. And then on the inside calls all the operations that represent the uh, defined by run operation in question. So this can be conveniently done in um, inductor because our loops, our loop bodies are, uh, are control flow free. We don't have any sort of control flow. So we can just use a regular Python interpreter to step through them. 
And the big consequence of doing it this way is that you get to write really compact definitions. For example, let's say that you have two pointwise bodies and you want to compose them together into a single pointwise body. In a normal graph transformation, you have to take the two graphs, you know, sort of muck around with the inputs, rename nodes so that you manage to get, you know, the outputs lined up with the inputs, so forth, and, you know, uh, do, do a lot of administrative work to get things together. In a defined by run IR, you just have two functions, right? One function takes in some inputs, produces some outputs, and the other function takes in some inputs and produces some more outputs. So what do you do? You define a new function that calls the first one and then calls the second one. No problem. So this let's let's you write really really slick really really short uh, lowering code. It's 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 actually really nice. And of course you don't give up the ability to access the uh, structured graph representation because all you need to do is uh, run this function where you've overridden the behavior of the operations to basically mean, please write this out into an FX graph. So you, you, you have a way to reify the uh, higher order abstract syntax into your graph. Um, this is all done via this, uh, this thing called virtualized, which basically takes all of the um, inductor core IR operations. Um, these, these are things like add, sub, whatever that you have inside of loop bodies and allows you to change what exactly they do depending on the situation. So one common thing to do is I want this operation to write into an FX graph. But we also do other things by changing the abstract interpretation of these operations. For example, you can do read-write analysis to figure this out. Okay, so we've talked about um, what the actual inside of compute buffer and the pointwise and reduction nodes look like. And so uh, essentially, we, we, you end up with this big pile of buffers and unfused computation. Um, and uh, there's a few things going on uh, in this situation. So one is that uh, we have this notion of a buffer that has been realized versus a buffer that is just computation. So when you have a buffer that is realized, we are going to forbid fusing into it. We basically said, we guarantee you that this data is going to exist in physical form at this point in the IR. And this is important because if you are, for example, calling an extern kernel, uh, which is expecting to see a tensor, or if you're going to use this buffer a lot of times, you really don't want to be recomputing uh, its quantity um, over and over again. And so unfused compute, which you know hasn't been realized, is allowed to sort of go ahead and fuse or maybe even run multiple times if you know that's uh, profitable uh, for the situation. And of course, the scheduler, which runs after we've lowered all of our ATIN operations to inductor IR, is that what's actually responsible for deciding what order to run things? You know, uh, how exactly should we uh, fuse things together? What's the most profitable fusion to do at any point in time? Okay, so I've talked a little bit about the high-level structure of an inductor IR, how it models PyTorch faithfully going from a tensor box to a storage box to a buffer, and then finally to the defined by run IR that represents an operation in question. That's most of the high-level information you need to know about how to work with inductor IR. The most common things you have to do is you want to write a new lowering, or perhaps you want to write a new IR node. So let's talk a little bit about some of the more practical nuts and bolts of working with inductor IR. So one thing that I find 
I found pretty confusing about inductor IR when I first read it is there are a lot of IR nodes. So I, I talked about the most basic ones um, and Horace likes to tell me, well, you know, inductor IR isn't that complicated. There's only, you know, point-wise and reduction that really matter. But actually, if you look at IR, there's lots and lots of other nodes doing all sorts of other things. There's nodes for collectives, there's a node for convolutions. And this is where uh, my warning that, hey, you know, we don't, it's not entirely clean, right? Like we probably don't need this many IR nodes. The reason why people write IR nodes is because let's say you have an ATIN operation and you need to generate some code for it. And none of the pre-existing IR nodes does exactly what it is you need for the code gen in this case. The easy thing to do is to just write a new IR node, you know, write the uh, lowering to that IR node, and then write out all of the code gen that you need to do for that particular IR node. And so this actually is often the path of least resistance. So people added a bunch of IR nodes. But in actuality, it's often the case that you can reuse some pre-existing IR node. For example, we have an IR node that represents calling into an external kernel. It's called extern kernel, um, predictably speaking. And this IR node does a lot, right? Like when you pass in inputs to uh, an extern kernel, we have to do a lot of stuff to make sure they all exist as actual tensors. And there's also a lot of logic for actually generating the code gen in the situation. So in a lot of cases, it would have been better if we had generalized extern kernel to work with more things uh, and use it, reuse it for a bunch of uh, IR nodes. But we haven't, this is, this is a good refactor if you know, you're interested in this sort of thing. When you're working with an IR node, there are a bunch of things you can customize. And this is also one of the reasons people define an IR node. For example, the scheduler needs to decide what order to run. So you need to report what the read write dependencies are. This is something that you can customize on an IR node level basis when you're writing a new IR node. Similarly, um, we have a concept of side effects, right? If an IR node is, has a side effect, we're not allowed to dead code eliminate it. So that's also something you can change when you're working with an IR node. Um, one other thing that's really useful when you're working with IR nodes is we do keep track of origins for them. So the original uh, A10 graph has a bunch of A10FX nodes, and we keep track of which A10FX node uh, produced a particular IR node. Now, this is not a single one-to-one -one mapping because when we fuse things together, lots of A10 operations might go into the same IR node. Um, conversely, a single A10 operation might get desugared into multiple IR nodes if it's doing say, a point-wise operation, and then a reduction. But this is really useful, and it's how we you know, generate meaningful uh, kernel names, for example, if you have that enabled in Trident. So yeah, that's a whirlwind tour to Inductor IR. As I said, um, it's highly in flux, and I, I don't claim to be the world expert on Inductor IR, but hopefully that gives you an idea for how to like look around this pretty important Inductor IR data structure. Thanks you for listening. See you next time.